0: Hi, I'm James. And I'm Anthony.
1: And this is Words and Numbers, presented by FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education. This is the part, Ant, where I ask the unanswerable question,
0: so what's new and interesting in your world this week? Oh, I have an answer. Yeah, I know, but it's going to (laughs) suck. We're approaching midterm exams here at Duquesne. It's gotten me thinking about revealed preferences. Economists pretty much ignore what people say they want because people almost always say they want things that they really don't. In fact, they often believe they want things that they really don't. What interests economists isn't what people say they want, but what they choose to pursue. We call this revealed preferences. Professors see this every time exams roll around. Students come to my office, they say things like, I really want to do well in this course, or I wanted to study more for this test, but then they go on to list the reasons why they can't or didn't. For example, I wanted to study more for this test, but it was pledge week. Or I wanted to complete the homework, but there was a social the night before. Or I wanted to devote more time to this class, but I had team practice. Most people would hear those sentences and think that the longer is the litany of reasons why the student couldn't complete a task, the more understandable is the student's lack of completion. But economists aren't most people. What economists hear is not a litany of things that stood in the student's way, but rather a list of things the student valued more than completing the task. When the student says he couldn't complete the homework because he had practice a fraternity meeting and had to watch his neighbor's dog, what he just told me is that on his list of priorities, completing his homework is at best number four— and it clearly ranks below watching the neighbor's dog. I'm picking on students, but all humans do this. People who say they care about the environment but either don't recycle or meticulously recycle things that cost more energy to recycle than to produce new reveal that what they really care about is saying that they care about the environment. One could argue that such people would behave differently if they knew the relevant facts, But all that tells The Economist is that such people value their contribution to the environment less than the cost of obtaining the relevant facts. And with Google at our fingertips and plenty of leisure time, the cost of obtaining relevant facts is very low, which makes the value they place on their contribution to the environment lower still. Sometimes people will vehemently deny what their revealed preferences admit— Many people become quite irate when economists put a dollar value on people's lives. People will swear that this is not only impossible, but it is deeply immoral to even think that a human life has some finite value. And yet, those same people will choose to purchase less safe cars because the cars are less expensive, revealing that they too place a finite value on human life. And I'll give you an example. In 2018, there were 69 driver and passenger deaths among every 1 million cars, but only 32 driver and passenger deaths among every 1 million SUVs. According to AAA, the average annual cost of owning and operating a car is around $8,000, while the average annual cost of owning and operating an SUV is around $11,000. Do the math. If you choose not to buy the SUV because it's more expensive, you've just revealed that you believe your life is worth less than $80 million. Now, you might respond, but wait, I can't afford an SUV, to which the economist will reply, but you could if you lived in a smaller space, if you stopped eating at restaurants, and if you canceled your Netflix, Amazon Prime, and internet service. But here again is that pesky revealed preference. If a person chooses not to live in a smaller space to stop eating out or to cancel his various subscriptions so that he can afford the safer SUV instead of the car, then the person is saying that his life has a finite value. Revealed preferences on my mind, not just because exams are rolling around, but also because of the lockdown. The lockdown is going to cost around $15 trillion, making it, after the War on Poverty, the second most expensive endeavor our country has ever undertaken. Politicians decided to lock down the country because they proceeded from a false premise that it is worth saving lives no matter the cost. Revealed preferences indicate that despite our protestations to the contrary, exactly none of us believes that is true. That's revealed preferences
1: in four and a half minutes. On the other hand, you could have gone this way. Two economists walk around a corner and see a busker playing a beautiful violin. One economist looks to the other and says, I always wanted to play violin. And the second economist answers, no, you didn't. Exactly. That's exactly right. <laughs> so 12 seconds probably could have got you all the way home on that one. But I'm going to take us and over to Europe for where our friends are... Um, I don't quite know how to put this. I guess getting ready for the next batch of shortages, because UK supermarkets, Tesco and Morrison's, are now rationing toilet paper and hand sanitizer. This should sound familiar to people who have lived through the last year or so, in fear that panic buying is about to return. And why would there be more panic buying? Because people think they're going to be locked up even harder than they are. And the market is pointing to an answer that the politicians haven't yet given. And the market is always right about these things. So I would say if you're living in a place where all of a sudden limits are being put on things that you can buy again, you're
0: about to get hosed. Yeah, you're about to get locked down. You know, that reminds me, there's a pool that runs every election cycle, and you could actually put money on candidates. Well, you're talking about predict it, and then there's all... Yeah, right. Of course, there's
1: all kinds of other places where you can lay wagers on politics as easily as you can lay them
0: on sports. But economists have looked at this and found that these things are excellent predictors of who's going to win. They're way better than talking head type people who have
1: their own axe to grind. Right? You can look at markets and get a good answer. Yeah. It's not always right, but it's more often than not very right. Yeah, because you've got a bunch of people putting their money where their mouths are. And if I walked into a supermarket here in Tucson next week and I saw a bunch of toilet paper with a rationing sign above it, I'd think, oh God, here we go again. Right. I would go to that store repeatedly until I had enough toilet paper in my
0: garage to last me until Armageddon. (laughs) Well, you know, that's funny because if I was an immoral businessman, I would just put the rationing sign out there knowing that you would anticipate that there's rationing coming and buy up all the toilet paper. Yeah,
1: well, there's an interesting story I never actually tell. But in a previous life, when I was an undergraduate student for the first time, I was in a bit of a cutthroat program. One day, I had a final exam, and I walked down, and I walked. I got in early. I wanted to brush through my notes one last time. And on the wall, on the door to the classroom, there was a piece of paper with the following written on it, exam rescheduled. It gave a time and a place. And about a third of the people who walked up to the room looked at it and left. And then the professor walked in, saw it, took it off the wall, threw it away, and gave us our exam, for which there were no makeups. Oh, man. So it was a little on the brutal side, but what can you do? Oh, my God. That's awful. <laughs> you got to be careful. Be wary of signs placed on doors, I guess, is the real lesson yeah. here. But, and this, of course, brings us to the foolishness of the week. And once again, I'm left to look at our friends from the Democratic Party who have decided through, a, I guess, Representative Roe Khanna from California, of all places, part of the brain trust of the National Democratic Party, has decided that what we really need to do now is fundamentally, I believe was the word he wanted to use, fundamentally alter the way the Supreme Court is composed. He's decided that he's going to introduce some legislation that term limits members of the Supreme Court of the United States of America. Has he read the Constitution? Well, see, now that leaves us with an uncomfortable set of possibilities. On the one hand, he could have read the Constitution and not cared. On the other hand, he could have not read the Constitution at all. And I defy you to tell me which of those two things is the better option. Because here's what Article 3, Section 1 says. And I feel like I should read this so everybody in the world can know, and maybe everybody out there in listener land can send a link to Representative Cona's office. Because here's what he missed. The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. Here's where it gets important. The judges, both of the Supreme and inferior courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior. I think we can kind of stop there. They hold their offices during good behavior. And if you're going to tell me that they're going to term limit them out in 18 years— what magical thing happens in year 18 that we can all point to and say, well,
0: this behavior has gotten quite atrocious? Yeah, but meanwhile, and we've done an episode on this, perhaps a year ago this time, Congress has the ability to impeach justices. That they do. And we've reached a point where we tend to think of impeachment as being the response to malfeasance, but the founders intended it as a political tool.
1: Well, not exactly. I would say that that's what it amounts to at the end of the day. I don't think you could find a founder that would say it just the way you did a moment ago. But this idea that we can just tell them that now it's an 18-year job max, and then you have to go away, is just foolish. Yep. And I don't know how anybody could recommend this without being embarrassed by his own behavior. The Constitution actually matters. To just brush it aside like this is crazy. This is going exactly nowhere. This person is a fool. And more than that, he's a fool in the best instance. And that's as good as it gets. If he's not a fool, if he knows, then he's incredibly destructive and he should be the one impeached. They should get him right the hell out of there. And that they can do. The House of Representatives is the final authority on who gets seated and who doesn't. House members can look at him and say, you're
0: out of here. I wasn't aware of that. Are you saying that the House can remove one of its own members? Yeah. Over the wishes of that member's constituents? Yeah.
1: It's Article 1, Section 5. Probably a section that I've never referred to on this podcast. But here's what you get. Each House shall be the judge of the elections, returns, and qualifications of its own members. And a majority of each shall constitute a quorum to do business. They determine their own members. So if somebody does something really, really terrible, you know, like ignoring the Constitution of the United States, the rest of the House can look at him and say, yeah, guess what? Go home. Of course, they won't, because that's not in their interest to hold somebody's feet to the fire in terms of following the Constitution. But it could be done literally at any time. And this is typically used when there's been some kind of election hooliganism. If everybody knows that somebody cheated his way to an election the rest of the House can look at that and say, well, okay, technically, I guess you won, but we're not going to see you. Or if there's some kind of criminal past that comes up, or if a candidate does something horrific between the day he was elected and the day he was seated, all kinds of outcomes that you would want this mechanism to deal with. And it should be used primarily, I assert, to deal with congressmen who don't care about the United States Constitution. But, of course, that would require that you have a majority who
0: do care about it. And you don't have that either. So what can you do? To help support our podcast, Making Habit, please make your way over to patreon.com and wordsandnumbers, where for less than a Netflix subscription, you can help to ensure a steady stream of thoughtful weekly commentary on economics, government, and current events. This week, Clark Neely joins us. Clark is Vice President of Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute. His areas of interest include constitutional law over civil forfeiture, police accountability, and gun rights. Clark is author of Terms of Engagement, How Our Courts Should Enforce the Constitution's Promise of Limited Government. Clark, welcome back to Words and Numbers. It's great to be back. Thanks. We've spent a number of episodes taking what I think are well-deserved pot shots at our legal system, and we thought we'd go in the other direction and ask an expert, that's you, what things the Supreme Court has gotten right over the years. And I know that one of the points that you'll want to talk about is Marbury versus Madison, the case of judicial review. And that's probably a decent place to start, given that that, to my understanding, kind of defined the scope of the Supreme Court's powers in an odd way. The Supreme Court defined for itself its powers. Is that fair? Yes and no. We should start with
2: the text of the Constitution. Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution states that the judicial power shall extend to all cases and controversies arising under this Constitution. So it's not as if the Supreme Court was trying to decide what its proper role was in a complete vacuum. I would say that that more than suggested. That text indicates that the branch that is created by Article 3, which is the judiciary, has a certain scope of power, and that power extends to resolving controversies, including controversies between citizens and their government that arise under the Constitution. Well, what else would you call that, a judicial review?
1: And there's a couple of things that people in our audience might not know. The first of which is that in Federalist 78, Hamilton lays out beautifully the same exact argument that John Marshall makes some years later. So it's not like this comes from whole cloth. There's a deep tradition here. But the other thing that people probably wouldn't believe is that if you read Article 3 of the Constitution, there are no qualifications for being a justice on the Supreme Court. And that's kind of strange.
2: I suppose in light of the direction that the Trump appointments have been going, we might say that a viable birth would be necessary before you could be eligible to be appointed to the Supreme Court. He's really picking them young for the lower courts. But you don't have to be a lawyer. You don't have to have had any certain amount of experience, unlike The qualifications for president and legislator, there's no age limit. So yeah, it's wide open. And people have cogently argued that perhaps the Supreme Court would be a better institution if it had a wider variety of background and perspectives among the justices.
1: What are the cases that you think of when you hear the phrase, well-decided case at the level of the Supreme Court? What ones have they gotten right?
2: Well, let's take a somewhat controversial one that I think actually is pretty timely. And that's the famous or infamous Citizens United case. This is a case that I don't know what the percentages would be, but I would say most people think that it was wrongly decided, usually because they don't really have a clear understanding of what the case was about. They listen to the propaganda about it, but in fact, and the propaganda they listen to about it is that the Supreme Court held that in the political context, money, campaign finance money is speech, and they didn't hold that. Citizens United involved the question of whether a company could distribute a video that they had created that was critical of Hillary Clinton when she was campaigning for president. And there was at the time a federal law on the books that limited the distribution of election-related materials within a certain number of days, 60 and 90 days before an election. And so there was an effort to suppress the distribution of this movie that was critical about Hillary Clinton. The Supreme Court struck down that portion of federal election law and said there's a First Amendment right for even a private corporation to disseminate this video. Now, fast forward to 2020, and thank goodness, because I suspect that many of the people who are critical of Citizens United, the decision, are nevertheless very strong supporters of the proposition that private companies, including nonprofits, should be able to disseminate critical information about at least one of the current presidential candidates, and I leave it to you to guess which one.
0: So how is it that people get that wrong and think that it's about money equals speech?
2: Well, I think in part because the proponents of those kinds of laws have been effective at essentially creating a mythology about what is the real effect of campaign finance laws. And they distill it down to just a very simplistic soundbite, which is that they are trying to get money out of politics, with the very strong implication that the more money there is in politics, the more corruption there is. And of course, the truth of the matter is, and George Will has written about this very eloquently, there's actually not that much money in politics. You look at the amount of money that we spend, for example, on a presidential election, it's less than we spend on Easter candy every year. But more importantly, it's a fantasy to suppose that you can essentially completely eliminate the influence of money in elections. And it also turns out to be, I think we're now realizing, like, it's always possible to buy an election. Michael Bloomberg, who is the billionaire mayor of New York City or former mayor of New York City, spent millions and millions of dollars trying to be his Democratic Party's nominee during the run-up to the current election cycle. And he basically got almost no traction, despite spending far more money than many of the other candidates. So I reject the idea that rich people can buy elections or buy legislation, but more importantly, money is something is in this context, is simply something that enables you to amplify speech. Money is not speech, but it is a means of amplifying the speech that you wish to engage in.
1: To switch gears a little bit here, Ant and I have written, I think, quite a few pieces on the Commerce Clause and its silly application, for lack of a better term. But I remember reading the Lopez case. It was the gun-free school zone business. And I thought the, the court did actually quite a good job on that. It was probably the first time in, what, three generations that the Interstate Commerce Clause didn't win the day?
2: Yes, that's right. So Lopez is a 2005 case involving essentially whether there was any limit at all on the so-called commerce power. And for those, I'm sorry, this is a 1995 case and it spoke. The issue in Lopez was the constitutionality of a federal law that made it a crime to possess a handgun within a thousand feet of a school. And a person was prosecuted for that federal crime. And his public defender actually raised rather boldly the argument that the statute itself was unconstitutional because it does not regulate something that is among the enumerated powers of Congress. Now, what the federal government typically does in seeking to defend a law like this, they use the so-called Commerce Clause as a kind of a wild card to justify whatever it is they're doing. This provision of Article I, Section 8 empowers Congress to regulate commerce among the states. So ask yourself, how is possessing a handgun within a thousand feet of a school, even arguably a regulation of commerce? And I am not kidding you. The government's argument was that because school is necessary to educate people to enable them to participate in the economy as workers, if we allow people to carry weapons near schools, it might so distract the children and cause so much anxiety that they wouldn't be able to focus on their studies sufficiently to then go on to become productive members of society. Not only am I not kidding that that was the federal government's argument, but it was signed onto by four out of nine justices. Lopez was a five to four decision and so four justices bought this theory that that is enough of a connection to commerce, i.e. trying to ensure that school children don't become distracted by the threat of violence in schools, that it represents a valid exercise of the federal power to regulate commerce among the states. A rather breathtakingly creative expansion of what was meant to be an enumerated and thus limited power. But to be clear, the majority five justices did reject that interpretation and said, no, there are limits to what we will construe as falling within the ambit of the Commerce Clause, and this just doesn't fit.
1: My natural inclination at this moment is to start bashing the Supreme Court, bringing up Commerce Clause cases, comparing that to the anti-federalist output in 1787-88. We're supposed to be looking at the bright side of things. So let's stay with guns and think about Heller. Maybe that's a nice place to go.
0: Am I correct that you argued Heller in front of the Supreme Court?
2: I was the backup quarterback on the Heller argument. So I was there. I was sitting next to Alan Gura, who was the lead counsel and who did the argument. And I was prepared to argue. And by the way, if you wonder whether the backup quarterback secretly hopes that the first team quarterback gets sick on the day of the Super Bowl, he does. (laughs) But Alan did a fantastic job. So the Heller case actually arose out of an idea that I had when I was working at the Institute for Justice with my colleague, Steve Simpson. We came to the conclusion that the time was right to try to get a case to the US Supreme Court to interpret the Second Amendment. For over 200 years, the Supreme Court had treated the Second Amendment as if it just didn't exist. They had never definitively interpreted it. There was one case where they looked at it It as a case in 1939, where they took a look at it and then just kind of punted. They really didn't give any meaningful interpretation. That was the Miller case. But what the lower courts had been doing was unanimously, the lower federal courts of appeals had unanimously interpreted the Second Amendment as protecting not an individual right to own a gun, but rather a collective right. And as a former Russian major who has been who went to the former Soviet Union before it dissolved, I'm very aware, as I know you all are as well, what a collective right is, and it is nothing. It means nothing. And that's the way the lower courts have been treating the Second Amendment, as having no meaningful content. And in 2001, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers my home state of Texas, along with Louisiana and Mississippi, became the first federal court of appeals to buck that trend and to embrace the proposition that the Second Amendment does protect an individual right. This created a split of authority among the lower courts, which is what tends to really get the Supreme Court finally off the bench, so to speak, or off of its butt. We managed to get a civil rights case filed here in Washington, D.C. with some really great plaintiffs. Uh, Dick Heller was actually not originally the lead plaintiff, but because of some procedural developments in the case, he came to be the lead plaintiff. And we were able to present the Supreme Court with the opportunity to either embrace or reject the proposition that the Second Amendment protects an individual right. And as I assume most of your listeners know, in 2008, by a five to four decision written by Justice Scalia for the majority, the Supreme Court said that, in fact, the Second Amendment does protect an individual right to own a gun, which is absolutely correct. And what we're essentially seeing now is an attempt in the lower courts work out the application of that principle in the context of a variety of different gun regulations. Unfortunately, there is a sort of a sad epilogue, which is that there has been a massive resistance in the lower courts. And I would say a majority of lower courts are, I believe, interpreting Heller in bad faith, deliberately, in order to render the Second Amendment as meaningless as possible. It remains to be seen whether the Supreme Court will step in to correct this misbehavior on the part of the lower courts. They've passed up a number of opportunities to do so. Whether that goes on indefinitely is anybody's
0: guess. We're talking about things that you perceive the Supreme Court has gotten right. And I can't imagine that we can have this conversation without talking about freedom of speech. And this has always surprised me because it seems to be the case that anytime the Supreme Court is considering something that touches the First Amendment, all of a sudden across the board, they seem to become staunch defenders of the words of the Constitution. And that seems to fade away as you work your way down through the other amendments. What is it about the justices over time that they seem to be so enamored of the First Amendment, much more so than the others?
2: Great question. I don't know the answer to it, but I'll sort of speculate. I will exercise my right of free speech to speculate about some possible answers. Do you know I've written a book called Terms of Engagement How Our Courts Should Protect the Constitution's Limited Government? The issue here is whether the courts are going to take a hard look at a freedom restricting statute or come at it more as a free pass. And for reasons that we will get into, I think the Supreme Court is particularly inclined to be engaged when it comes to First Amendment issues. I think there are a couple of reasons. First, the text of the First Amendment is so unambiguous. It says that Congress shall make no law infringing speech or the freedom of the press, et cetera. So those are clear and unambiguous terms. That's helpful. It's helpful to have such a clear textual expression.
0: Yeah, but we have those same clear and unambiguous terms in the Second Amendment.
2: Well, keep in mind that the Second Amendment has the so-called prefatory clause that says that a well-regulated right. militia being necessary. So you get, you know, there's at least room to argue there's some ambiguity in the Second Amendment. There's no room to argue that there's any ambiguity in the First Amendment. That I think is very helpful. Second, think about the kinds of people who become Supreme Court justices and what they have done throughout their entire lives. What is their stock in trade? Their stock in trade is writing, sometimes speaking, but primarily writing. That has been the defining essence of their professional life has been expressing themselves. And so some people hypothesize, and I think there's something to this, that they are particularly sensitive to an activity that has been the defining feature of their professional life. And then third, I think you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand how essential the ability to speak and think freely are in any country that's going to call itself free or in any country that purports to be a liberal democracy. You know, a good friend of ours, James Stacy Taylor, has one of the best things I've ever heard, and I'm going to steal it from him right now with attribution. I've seen him say this, and I think you've seen him say this many times. He'll get up in front of a bunch of students and he'll say, I have many beliefs. I know that some are mistaken, but I don't know which ones. That is true of every single one of us. And the only way, the only way that we can correct the things about which we are mistaken is to be able to freely exchange ideas with other people. On some level, I think that the people who become Supreme Court justices get that, perhaps through different frameworks, perhaps through different philosophical traditions, but virtually everybody, I think who has been confirmed to the Supreme Court throughout our history, with perhaps just a couple of exceptions, recognizes the absolutely indispensable role that free expression plays in the civic life of a liberal democracy like ours.
1: It's interesting, because Ant went straight to speech, and you went straight to speech, and that's indicated in the text of the First Amendment, so fair enough. But somewhere along the way, speech and expression got pretty well conflated, And given the president that we now have, it's no surprise that you hear him and some of his sycophants saying things like burning the flag should be illegal, right? Things like this. And we have rulings on that sort of thing. I'm thinking more specifically of Cohen versus California, where a gentleman was wearing a jacket that said F dash 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 the draft in a courthouse and was promptly arrested. So maybe you could walk us through the expression side of this coin.
2: That's a great point. We all understand what speech is. That's not too hard to get right, but the Supreme Court has expanded the scope of what's protected to include expression. And I think we should talk about the flag case because this is a case in which my home state of Texas made it a crime to burn an American flag. I haven't read this Texas statute in some time, but you could burn it respectfully as a way of disposing of it. What's interesting here is that the court just barely got this one right. This was a 5-4 to case from 1989, and what was amazing to me, I frankly was fairly shocked that it's not unanimous. Because why? Because the whole point, the thing that makes flag burning so powerful and so offensive to so many people is precisely the fact that it is an expressive act. And we don't let the government pick and choose what forms of expression it will allow, and which ones it will not, based on their content or based on the attitude that that expression takes towards government. That burning of a flag is absolutely an expression of contempt for something, for the country. And the idea that Mr. Johnson, who was prosecuted for burning a flag in Texas, had simply written out his contempt or whatever motivated him to burn that flag, that would have been fine. But using the arguably far more powerful avenue or mechanism of burning a flag to express his feelings the idea that that wouldn't be protected i think is quite surprising now keep in mind that the text of the constitution does protect speech it does not expressly protect expression but i think the supreme court quite correctly has interpreted the word speech in the first amendment quite broadly to include all forms of expression and has erred on the side of finding that a particular thing is expressive up to and including by the way what we sometimes euphemistically refer to as exotic dancing. So the Supreme Court has even held that taking off your clothes while dancing on a stage to music, it falls within the ambit of the First Amendment. I think reasonable people can disagree about whether that case was correct or not, but it does illustrate the Supreme Court's propensity to err on the side of finding that things are covered by the First Amendment.
0: James took us from speech to expression, but the Supreme Court goes further. And am I correct? It protects silence as well. Oddly, as a form of speech.
2: (laughs) Well, right. There is this doctrine of compelled speech, and the Supreme Court is fairly protective of your ability not to be forced to say something. A famous case here is called West Virginia v. Barnett, which is one of these Pledge of Allegiance slash flag salute cases. In Barnett, it was a flag. In the case that it overturned, which was called Gobitis, I think it was a Pledge of Allegiance. But these are cases in which people, I think in both cases, Gobitis from 1940 and Barnett from 1943, involved schoolchildren whose religious doctrine forbade them from saluting a flag or taking the, pledging the oath. And initially the Supreme Court upheld the law in the Gobitis case and said, well, government wants to require a certain basic level of citizenship. When kids are in public school, it can do that. But just three years later, I think not coincidentally, after we had been involved in World War II for over a year, the Supreme Court turned on a dime and said, no, this is not permissible to force children to salute a flag or take an oath of allegiance. And there's a very famous passage by Justice Jackson that is very much worth quoting because it's very famous. If there is any sixth star in our constitutional constellation, it is that no official, high or petty, can describe what shall be orthodox in politics nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion, or force citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein. I think that's probably one of the most important passages in all of Supreme Court case law. And that is a shining example of the Supreme Court getting it right.
1: I think that is the top of my list, actually. It's, I think, by a comfortable margin, my favorite thing that any justice ever wrote down. You said earlier, as we started down this path, you said that, Well, sometimes your right not to speak is protected. And maybe we could just take a few seconds to go negative here. When is your right to remain quiet, not really your right to remain quiet?
2: One area where we've seen it is in labeling, labeling of various products, including foodstuffs. There's a whole web of regulations that require various disclosures, right down to the level of, for example, There's a requirement that people who sell certain kinds of meat have to disclose if any of the meat in a given package came from animals that were raised outside of the United States. And with beef, at least, it'll often be the case that these animals were raised in Mexico, but then were transported to the United States for slaughter and distribution. And this is a rather obvious and blatant attempt by producers within the United States all of whose product comes from domestically raised animals to essentially suggest that animals that come from outside the United States, including from Mexico, are inferior in some way. They kind of want to force their competitors to put that right out there on your packaging. Hey, I've got some beef in here from a cow that was raised in Mexico. And so the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is one step below the Supreme Court, actually upheld that and said that that is a permissible requirement to force the seller of a particular kind of meat product to advise the public where the meat came from. We're seeing similar things with genetically modified organisms, GMOs. There are requirements that you have to disclose whether or not the food has GMO in it. Oftentimes, these are very cynical attempts by one segment of a market to force another segment of a market to make disclosures that the proponent of these regulations thinks will harm their competitive position in some way. And I wish the courts were more protective than they have been. But on balance, to recap the whole discussion about the First Amendment, this is probably the one area of the Constitution in which the courts have gotten the highest rate of correct decisions and demonstrate the highest level of engagement
0: one of the topics that I know you have an opinion on fascinates me also, and that's compulsory vaccination. Because from an economic standpoint, spreading disease looks almost identical to polluting. And we understand in economics that pollution is a negative externality and that there's a proper role for government in preventing this sort of thing. I understand the economic arguments, but I've never heard the legal arguments.
2: So what we're talking about here would be a state law that requires people to be vaccinated under certain circumstances. The leading case is called Jacobson versus Massachusetts. It's a 1905 case in which the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of a Massachusetts law that compelled vaccination for various diseases. And I think it's important for us to keep in mind that context, the timing of this, the discovery of the germ theory of disease and the invention of vaccines was arguably one of the most significant developments in all of human technology. Let me just give you one, I think, incredibly moving statistic. Throughout most of human history, up until the advent of modern medicine, including specifically vaccines, across cultures, it almost didn't even matter which culture we're talking about and really what your socioeconomic status was, the likelihood that a child would die before the age of 10 was about one in three. So if you're a parent, you're going to lose about a third of your kids. And it doesn't matter whether you're in Han, China, or you're French royalty. That was just a pretty fixed rate. The likelihood that you will lose one of your children today, at least in a developed nation like ours, is about one in 100,000. So we go from a one in three chance of losing a kid to a one in 100,000 chance. And most of that, most of that work is being done by our ability to combat infection. And a lot of that work is done by people being vaccinated. And so that was an immense step forward for humanity. And what the Supreme Court essentially said in Jacobson was that it is within the power of the state to require people to be vaccinated. There's no other way to suppress epidemics. And the amount of good that is done when everybody is vaccinated is immense. But they left a kind of interesting caveat. I think a very wise and sensible caveat, which was, nevertheless, if you as an individual can show that a particular vaccine would be uniquely harmful or hazardous to you, then the requirement to be vaccinated is not non-negotiable, not set in stone. There could be room for somebody, for example, who can show with a reasonable degree of certainty or likelihood that they're going to have a really negative reaction to that vaccine. They might be able to have a constitutionally viable argument that the state may not compel them to be vaccinated with a particular kind of vaccine that might hurt them. Um, That seems to me, again, to have gotten it exactly right. For a whole lot of reasons, but that basically the state governments do have this thing called the police power, which is the power to essentially try to make society safe and healthy and productive. And if you've got people who are holding out and refusing to be vaccinated against something like smallpox, which is one of the greatest killers in human history, we all have a stake in ensuring that people don't get to hold out and infect the rest of us, or at least infect people who've not been vaccinated yet.
1: The thing I always think about when anti-vaxxers get a hold of a microphone I remember reading an account of when the polio vaccine was made available, and it was such outstanding news, such great news that people in certain places were, this is literally true, dancing in the streets. Hmm. And they said things like, now our children don't have to die. I think we've kind of lost that, right? Because when it used to be one in three, and now it's one in 100,000, everybody just assumes the one in 100,000 is the natural state of affairs. And it isn't.
2: No, and there is, I think, as difficult as this may be for many libertarians to accept, there are times when there is a sufficient kind of collective action problem or where the holdout problems would be of sufficient magnitude that it is legitimate for the state to compel people to do a thing against their will. And it sounds like at least you and I, James, agree that this is one of those areas.
1: I certainly do, and I've taken a lot of heat for it over the years, but so be it. I think this is why. I, and I think Anthony too, and you as well, we're classical liberals and not necessarily libertarians. There's not a wide gulf between the two things, but there is a gulf. What do you want to close with, Clark? You got anything fascinating?
2: Well, I think there's an area I'd like to talk about where the Supreme Court has gotten it right that doesn't get enough attention. And guess what? It's marriage. Hmm. Most people are probably familiar with the Loving v. Virginia, which is the 1967 case where the Supreme Court struck down Virginia laws that made it illegal for people of different races to marry each other. By the way, I think we should add, that's not the first time the Supreme Court looked at one of these anti-miscegenation laws. They actually upheld an Alabama law in the late 1800s that forbade interracial marriage. But the second bite at the apple, the Supreme Court finally did get it right. But they've got it right in other settings, too, including, I think, quite poignantly, believe it or not, they actually upheld the constitutional right of a prison inmate. To get married. In a 1987 case called Turner v. Safely, a man who was in prison had struck up a relationship with a woman who was outside the prison. They decided they wanted to become married. The prison official said no. And just put it in that for a minute. Why? Why on earth is that any of their business? Why should they say no? Just to be mindlessly cruel and in an effort to deny people who are incarcerated just as many shards of their humanity as possible? I don't get it at all. But to its immense credit, the Supreme Court held that there is a constitutional right, even on the part of somebody who is incarcerated to get married. And then, of course, we have the 2015 case, perhaps most controversially, the Obergefell case from 2015 that held that there is a constitutional right for people of the same sex to get married as well. I suspect not all of our listeners will agree that that was a correct decision. They may support same-sex marriage as a policy matter, but yet see no constitutional basis for it. I think that is a reasonable perspective, but it is one that I respectfully disagree with. I think the Constitution properly interpreted protects people of the same sex getting married the same way that it protects me as a left-handed person getting married to a right-handed person, even though some insane person in, I'm not going to name a state, but a state might say, well, you know, those left-handed people are genetically inferior, we just don't want them reproducing. I think the state has got to have a genuine and good reason for preventing me as a left-handed person from marrying and having kids. And I think it's really no different when it comes to people of the same gender. It's a bit of an oversimplification, but I think it basically gets the essence of the thing correct.
0: I want to go back to the Loving versus Virginia case for a moment. This is one of few instances I'm aware of where the Supreme Court reversed a previous ruling. Yes. I know the Supreme Court doesn't like doing that for obvious reasons. What kind of explanation does the Supreme Court give? I mean, does it say, look, the people before were idiots or they misinterpreted? How does the Supreme Court reverse a previous Supreme Court decision?
2: There can be different ways of doing it. Sometimes they just ignore the fact that they've done something different before. That's not that common, but there's times when they pull it off. But other times they simply recognized that their initial understanding of a provision like the Equal Protection Clause was really not faithful to the meaning, to a complete and full understanding of that provision. Let's give an example. The Supreme Court for at least the first, I don't know, 100 years or so after the ratification of the 14th Amendment, which happened in 1868, more or less treated the Equal Protection Clause as if it didn't particularly speak to or include women. And for example, there was actually a case, and it's got a very difficult name to pronounce basically geeks think, E-S-A-R-T. there's a lot of Michigan that just said that women can't be bartenders and you could imagine some of the subtext there and probably some of the things that were in the minds of legislators when they passed the law and the Supreme Court upheld it said the state of Michigan just doesn't want women to work in certain professions that's fine and very much like with Loving v Virginia the court realized that that's not really a coherent interpretation or understanding of a provision that guarantees to every person equal protection of the law. I would say that the initial reading in HB Alabama of the Equal Protection Clause was unduly crabbed and rather obviously did not give full meaning. And almost certainly like the meaning that was intended by the people who voted to ratify the 14th Amendment. I think that probably a healthy consensus among them would have said, yeah, that this is going to enable people of different races to marry, but then the Supreme Court holds otherwise. It's a difficult question to answer because it's probably not always the same thing. But in a case like Loving, what the court essentially acknowledges is that it simply had a newly crabbed understanding of the constitutional provision and issue. And that when you understand it, given its full meaning, it compels a different result.
1: Clark, thanks for joining us. Next time you come along, I think we have to get back to normal with the dumpster fires that you typically discuss. (laughs) But this was interesting, at least for one day. And maybe we'll do this again on an annual basis, just to remind each other that the Supreme Court is probably, dare I say it, the least dangerous branch. That's all the time we've got this week on Words and Numbers. Be sure to join us next week when we have even more fascinating things. Until then, follow us on Twitter. The handles are in the show notes. Send us email. Wordsandnumberspodcast at gmail.com. Don't send email. Do not send.
0: Send lots of email. God.
1: And join the Words Numbers Backstage Facebook group. You should all join if you haven't. It's actually fun.
0: Find us on Patreon, where you can donate to our habit of making podcasts. Our habit
1: of making podcasts. And for crying out loud, just be nice to each other. It doesn't take much. Please just try it for a week. Get back to us. Have a great week. See you next week, James.